0: Okay, so we're going to get started on uh, attempting to make podcasts to help you prepare for the uh, write exam and for the board exams. And uh, the purpose of this is not necessarily to replace the reading that you might have to do or study or practice questions, but to give you another way to be practical and efficient about Uh, preparing uh, and uh, learning neurology. And hopefully this is something that you'll be able to use uh, at your convenience and maybe at times when it's not possible to read books. You know, you can uh, use it while you're at the grocery store or running or exercising or doing your laundry. Uh, My hope is that we give you lots of different ways uh, to help prepare and study. And hopefully at the end, uh, you are exposed to things you might not have otherwise been exposed to or reminded of them and are given some structure on how to prepare for things. So, we're going to start with epilepsy, and uh, we're going to divide this uh, podcast into this episode of the podcast into three different sections. The first section will be on seizure classification. The second section will be on anti epileptic drugs. And the third section will be on electroclinical syndromes, especially the pediatric electroclinical syndromes. And I think for uh, a large part of Uh, epilepsy uh, and clinical epilepsy that you're going to see on an examination, including the in-service examination or the uh, uh, board examination, uh, you're going to see a lot of these three different things. Uh, So hopefully this is extremely high yield for you. All right, let's start with seizure classification. I think this is something that does uh, lead to some confusion among residents, certainly among med students and junior residents, but even among some senior residents. And I think one of the problems is that we have changed the seizure classification over the years, and sometimes we're not entirely clear about uh, exactly uh, what we mean when we classify. I'm going to use the International League Against Epilepsy 2017 classification of seizure types. This is the most recent classification of seizure types, and it's really the one we should be moving towards. I also like it because it's more intuitive than some of the other older classification systems, but I will compare and contrast as we go through this. So when you're thinking about seizure type, really what we uh, are mean when we talk about the uh, classification is where it starts or where the onset is. And I think this is sometimes confusing because seizures can spread, but when we're talking about the classification, we're really talking about the initial onset. And there are really two main categories of onset of seizure, and those are focal onset and generalized onset. Focal onset, of course, is seizures that start in one specific area of the brain, and generalized onset seizures are seizures that start bilaterally, simultaneously, or synchronously, Generalized seems to imply that it will be the whole brain, but in fact, it's both hemispheres all at once. Not necessarily the entire brain, but both hemispheres all at once, often both frontal lobes, although they can be involving different parts of the brain. Now, really, between these two seizure onset types, you really only have to remember nine different seizure types. And those different seizure types are three types of seizures that you see in focal onset, And six main types of seizures of generalized onset. Let's go through the focal onset seizures first. The simplest type of focal onset seizure is a focal aware seizure. This is what used to be called a simple partial seizure. But again, I think focal aware makes a lot more intuitive sense. And basically, this is a focal seizure that remains restricted enough that there is no impairment of awareness. Now, focal-aware seizures can have lots of different manifestations, and that really depends on where in the brain they involve. Uh, The classic example of a focal-aware seizure would be a focal-motor seizure, and that usually involves the motor or premotor areas. And if a focal-motor seizure spreads along the homunculus, this is what causes what we call the Jacksonian march. A prolonged focal-motor seizure is also known as epilepsia partialis continua. There can be other types of focal aware seizures too, and they really depend on the uh, type of uh, the area of the brain that is involved. For example, you can have focal seizures with sensory symptoms. Uh, those are uh, usually localized to the parietal lobe. You can have focal seizures with special sensory symptoms, and those include things like taste, smell, which usually localize to the hippocampus, mesial temporal structures, or sometimes orbitofrontal structures. You can have focal seizures with visual manifestations arising from the occipital cortex, and uh, you can have focal seizures that have auditory uh, symptoms, and those usually arise from the lateral temporal lobe. Then you can have focal seizures with autonomic symptoms. Again, those can be mesial temporal or insular in onset. You can have focal seizures that arise uh, that are associated with what are called psychic phenomena. And those are really uh, cognitive or behavioral phenomena like fear, deja vu, uh, other things like that. And those typically, again, arise from either mesial temporal or sometimes orbital or mesial frontal. The point is there, are a broad, there is a broad range of focal seizures, and they really depend on where in the cortex is involved. The second type of focal onset seizure is focal seizures with impaired awareness. This is what used to be called complex partial seizures. Again, I think the terminology focal with impaired awareness or sometimes I like to call it focal unaware is a lot simpler than complex partial and a lot more intuitive. Focal unaware seizures can start as focal aware seizures and then there is spread to sufficient areas to disrupt the reticular activating system and you lose awareness. Focal unaware seizures often have uh, common manifestations. Uh, There can be behavioral arrest. There can be a lack of responsiveness or only partial responsiveness. And there can be automatisms. And the most common types of automatisms are lip smacking, which is sometimes called uh, oro-alimentary automatisms. There can be picking or uh, uh, squeezing or uh, pulling at things. And this is manual automatisms. And those often localize to seizures that uh, arise in the mesial temporal or sometimes frontal regions. The definition of impaired awareness is usually uh, relates to a lack of memory of the event afterwards. And the third type of focal onset seizure is what's called a focal to bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. This is what used to be called a secondarily generalized tonic-clonic seizure. Again, the point is that although it's generalized eventually, the onset is focal. So to review, the three types of focal onset seizures are focal aware, focal with impaired awareness, and focal to bilateral tonic-clonic. Then we move on to seizures of generalized onset. And again, sometimes we use the slang of generalized to refer exclusively to a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. This is only one of the six types of a generalized seizure. And of course, a generalized bilateral tonic-clonic seizure should be associated with a generalized syndrome. Most of the bilateral tonic-clonic seizures that we see are actually a focal onset because about 70% of seizures are focal onset, whereas only about 30% of people with epilepsy have generalized onset. The other five types of generalized onset seizures are tonic, tonic, clonic, myoclonic, atonic, and absence. So to review, the six types of generalized onset seizures are tonic-clonic, clonic, tonic, myoclonic, atonic, and absence. Again, there are variations of these types of seizures, but really those are the six you have to remember. And so really you only have to remember nine different seizure types. Tonic seizures are usually brief. They usually involve sudden extension of the arms or stiffening of the torso, and they can be associated with falls. Clonic seizures are fairly rare. These are associated with repetitive, generalized jerking that is typically slower than myoclonus. Myoclonic seizures are actually fairly common, probably because they're associated most frequently with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, which is the most common type of generalized epilepsy syndrome. Absence seizures, of course, are very common, associated with both uh, childhood and juvenile absence epilepsy. And atonic seizures are also fairly uncommon. Atonic, tonic, and clonic seizures are most commonly associated with what we call the symptomatic generalized epilepsy syndromes. Those are the epilepsy syndromes often seen in adults with uh, children and adults with other types of cognitive and neurological problems, who usually have multiple different seizure types. The classic example of a symptomatic generalized epilepsy syndrome is the Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. There are, of course, a few different seizure types that don't fit into this classification rubric. The first and most important is what's called epileptic spasms. This is what used to be called infantile spasms, but we know that they can occur in individuals that are out of infancy as well. Epileptic spasms are usually brief, occur in many clusters, and are associated with sudden stiffening of the torso, flexion or extension of the neck, and often extension of the arms. These are most commonly associated with uh, West syndrome in children, which also has associated with it uh, developmental delay and an EEG finding that is typical of West syndrome, which is hypsarrhythmia. We'll get back to that a little later in the podcast. So I hope that that briefly outlines how we define seizures, and hopefully it really helps you understand how to classify seizures in a very simple and utilitarian way that is intuitive. I hope that you start using this terminology because I think it will help change how we teach epilepsy and will also help students find epilepsy more accessible. Let's move on to anti-epileptic drugs. I think this is something that can be very difficult for people, considering that there are over uh, 20 different types of approved anti-epileptic drugs on the market today. As a result of that, I think that we are less familiar with specific types of anti-epileptic drugs outside of a very narrow range of drugs. And only people who see a lot of, uh, only neurologists who see a lot of people with epilepsy tend to be comfortable with this. I think we can approach our understanding of anti-epileptic drugs by dividing our thoughts into a few different categories, and hopefully this will help you organize your thoughts about anti-epileptic drugs and maybe organize some of your studying. The first would be to talk about the pharmacodynamics of the anti-seizure medications. And really what I mean by that is mechanism of action, so how these anti-epileptic drugs work in order to prevent seizures. The second is to talk about the pharmacokinetics, and this is how the drugs interact with each other, how they interact with the body, and how they interact with other types of medications. The third is to talk about specific choices of antiepileptic drugs for specific epilepsy syndromes. And then the fourth is some special considerations for antiepileptic drugs, and really this is things like indications for women of childbearing age, indications for people with other comorbid diseases, and indications for the elderly. There are entire textbooks about anti drugs, and of course, a comprehensive view of anti drugs is outside of the focus of this uh, podcast, but I do think that we can distill down the essentials of anti-epileptic drugs into 10 to 15 minutes, which hopefully will be helpful for you and uh, 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 provides a framework for you to build your other studying around. Let's start with pharmacodynamics. So all anti-seizure medications prevent seizures by either decreasing excitation or increasing inhibition. Excitation is mediated by excitatory postsynaptic potentials and by the action potential. The excitatory postsynaptic potentials, or EPSPs, are mediated by glutaminergic neuroexcitation. And so medications that affect the glutamate receptor, medications that affect calcium or calcium channels, which are involved in glutamate reception, or those that inhibit the release of anti-seizure, of uh, neurotransmitters, excitatory neurotransmitters, can all play a role in uh, anti-seizure properties. So to go through a few of these, we have medications that affect calcium channels or in some way uh, prevent activation of calcium channels and therefore decrease neurological excitation. And medications in this category include phenobarbital, valproic acid, gabapentin and pregabalin, and zanisamide and topiramate. More commonly, we have medications that actually affect the glutamate receptor itself, uh, and this can either affect the NNDA type of glutamate receptor or the AMPA type of glutamate receptor, or possibly both. Um, some medications that have functioned in this category include topiramate, zonisamide. And parampanil, and the way to remember this is that parampanil actually has the words AMPA in it. Felbamate may also have a role in this. Of course, we can actually inhibit glutamate activity by putting magnesium in the glutamate channel. If you remember uh, from your first year of med school, uh, magnesium molecules sit in that glutamate-activated calcium channel and uh, prevent the calcium channel from opening. This is probably why magnesium works in uh, in diseases like preeclampsia. Finally, we can have medications that decrease excitation by inhibiting the release of glutamate from the presynaptic potential. And there are really two medications that fit into this category. They both inhibit a synaptic vesicle called SV2A, and those medications are levetiracetam and briviracetam. The other way that we decrease excitation is by blocking or modulating sodium channels. And while I don't know that you need to memorize all the glutaminergic medications, I think it is important to remember a short list of the sodium channel blocking or sodium channel modulating medications. This is particularly important because these medications, when combined with each other, often produce a lot of side effects. As a rule of thumb, when you, put two, when you put a patient on two sodium channels together, it typically will cause more side effects like dizziness, double vision, ataxia, etc. The sodium channel-blocking medications include phenytoin, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, eslicarbazepine, and all of those three, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, and eslicarbazepine fit into the same category. Lamotrigine is also a sodium channel blocking medication. And licosamide is a special case. It decreases sodium channel activity, but not by directly blocking the opening of the voltage-gated sodium channel, but rather by enhancing the delayed inactivation that occurs in the sodium channel after it has already been activated. So again, to review, sodium channel blocking medications are phenytoin, carbamazepine, oxcarbazepine, s lamotrigine, and lecosamide. Finally, we can decrease the likelihood of seizures or stop seizures by potentiating GABA. And so really by potentiating GABA, we are enhancing in- inhibitory neurotransmission. Now, you should be aware of a short list of medications that act on GABA channels. Those, of course, include benzodiazepines. They also include clubizam, and they include phenobarbital. Valproic acid may have some GABA-enhancing uh, functions as well as some of the other functions that it has. And there's a medication called Vigabatrin, which actually inhibits GABA-transaminase, so it inhibits the breakdown of GABA and enhances uh, function uh, in terms of inhibition. Again, I think the gaba medications you should be aware of include benzodiazepines, clubazam, and phenobarbital. So really, that's a very brief and rapid overview of the pharmacodynamics of anti-seizure medications. This is something that you can review on your own, and I have provided you with a diagram that goes through some of the functions. But to review, all anti-seizure medications either decrease excitation through either sodium channel blockade or decreasing the excitatory postsynaptic potential, or they enhance inhibition. And this is by enhancing the inhibitory uh, postsynaptic potential uh, by enhancing the function of GABA. Now let's move on to pharmacokinetics. So, again, this is really related to how the medications are metabolized and how they work in specific populations. So, I think one thing that comes up a lot is talking about enzyme induction. So, these are medications that enhance the function of certain hepatic enzymes, usually those in the cytochrome P450 pathway. And the very strong inducers of uh, hepatic enzymes include some of the oldest antiseizure medications. And probably the big three to remember are carbamazepine, phenytoin, and phenobarbital. So these are three old, very effective anti medications that ha- often have very strong enzyme induction. There are some other medications on this list that you can think about, which include oxcarbazepine, parampanel, and primidone, but the big three that you need to remember in terms of being strong enzyme-inducers are carbamazepine, phenytoin, and phenobarbital. All of these medications will decrease the effectiveness of a lot of other anti-seizure medications. They will decrease the effectiveness of oral contraceptive pills, which is really important. They can decrease the effectiveness or function of a lot of other medications, and for us, most importantly, they often decrease the effectiveness of Coumadin. Therefore, when we start somebody on an enzyme-inducing medication, we often have to adjust Coumadin doses in order to maintain an appropriate INR. The main enzyme inhibitor, that is something that decreases the function of enzymes and increases overall levels of other medications, is valproic acid. Valproic acid can be a potent enzyme inhibitor and can result in paradoxical increases in lots of other medications. The most important pharmacokinetic interaction with valproic acid is actually lamotrigine. If you introduce lamotrigine to somebody who's already on valproic acid, you will effectively double lamotrigine doses. This is particularly important if you have somebody already on lamotrigine and introduce valproic acid. Basically, you're going to have to cut the dose of lamotrigine in half before you start the valproic acid in order to prevent toxicity. So really, that's it. Those are the things you want to think about in terms of enzyme induction. There are lots of other special considerations, but for your purposes and for studying, you really have to know about the enzyme inducers carbamazepine, phenobarbital, phenytoin, maybe a few others, and the main enzyme inhibitor, valproic acid, and the special interaction between valproic acid and lamotrigine, where valproic acid effectively doubles serum levels of lamotrigine. I did want to bring up lamotrigine in addition. Lamotrigine is a finicky medication because not only of its interaction with valproic acid, but because its metabolism can be induced by other medications, and especially during pregnancy or in women on the oral contraceptive pill. Basically, if you have a woman on a standard dose of lamotrigine, say 100 milligrams twice a day who has been doing well, and you start the oral contraceptive pill, you will cut lamotrigine levels in half. And this is something that's really important to mention to women. If you start the oral contraceptive pill, you are going to have to adjust the lamotrigine dose upward, often dramatically. Secondly, lamotrigine levels drop precipitously during pregnancy. They often drop by 50% or more. This happens in the second or third trimester. Therefore, pregnant women have to have lamotrigine levels checked monthly in order to avoid missing a dramatic decrease in the level of lamotrigine, thus resulting in increased risk of seizure during pregnancy. Now let's talk about indications of anti seizure medications. And really, again, this is something that we're going to keep pretty simple for your purposes. Anti-seizure medications can be separated into broad spectrum, that is, medications that work for a broad range of generalized onset and focal onset seizures, and narrow spectrum, which tend to work best for focal onset seizures. There's a short list of broad spectrum anti-seizure medications that you need to be aware of that would be strongly indicated in somebody who has a generalized epilepsy syndrome. Those include levetiracetam, valproic acid, brivaracetam, which is essentially a cousin of levetiracetam, lamotrigine, topiramid and zonisamide, which are cousins as well, and possibly clubazam. So this is a short list. If you were going to pick an even shorter list of sort of the big gun, broad spectrum antiseizure medications, I would say lamotrigine, valproic acid, levetiracetam and topiramate. And you can throw some of those other ones on the list, but those are going to be the medications that work for focal onset seizures. They work for all types of generalized seizures, like myoclonic seizures and absence seizures. And those are going to be the ones that you're going to prescribe in somebody who has a generalized seizure disorder. The narrow spectrum medications really include all the other ones. So most of the sodium channel blocking medications, if you remember going back to that, most of those are narrow spectrum. The only one that isn't is probably lamotrigine. There is one additional medication that is narrow spectrum, but actually for generalized seizures, and that's ethosuxamide. Ethosuxamide really only works for absence epilepsy and absence seizures. It actually doesn't prevent bilateral tonic-clonic seizures even in absence epilepsy. So ethosux is a narrow spectrum generalized uh, anti-seizure medication, and all the other ones are narrow-spectrum, but for focal seizures. So what happens if you use a focal agent in generalized epilepsy? Well, this is something that comes up on board exams and also comes up in real life. Basically, if you have somebody with myoclonic or absence seizures, those can be paradoxically worsened with focal agents, especially sodium channel-blocking agents. So if you gave somebody with juvenile monoclonic epilepsy with a lot of myoclonus, either carbamazepine or phenytoin, you could make that myoclonus worse. Similarly, if you gave somebody absence epilepsy, these medications, it might work, but it also might trigger absence status. And this is something just really important to keep in mind. These medications can paradoxically make generalized epilepsy syndromes worse. And it's one of the reasons that we don't use them a lot. This is something that comes up on questions. And I think we'll come up on one of the practice questions that we go through. That when you're thinking about triggering either myoclonus or absence status, think about sodium channel blocking agents. And again, the big ones to remember are phenytoin, carbamazepine, and then the carbamazepine cousins like oxcarbazepine or eslicarbazepine. Now let's talk about side effects. So I think these are just things that you have to remember, but sometimes you can put medications into similar categories and that can help you think about the side effects. So this is something to go over, and we have distributed tables and other study materials for you to go through uh, anti-seizure medication side effects. But maybe I'll list some anti-seizure medications and some common side effects, and you can work uh, on your own and test yourself as I'm talking about these to think about them. So... When I say phenytoin, think about the kind of side effects that you're thinking about with phenytoin. Of course, it can cause any of the side effects that you can see with any anti-seizure medication, including dizziness, fatigue, unsteadiness, blurred vision, and at toxic levels, it can cause nystagmus or a cerebellar syndrome. But some other paradoxical side effects with phenytoin include gingival hyperplasia, cerebellar ataxia, especially with chronic use, and maybe peripheral polyneuropathy with chronic use. Carbamazepine is next. Again, it's a sodium channel blocker, so it can have all the other side effects I just mentioned, but can also have hyponatremia. In rare circumstances, it can cause agranulocytosis or other suppression of the um, uh, bone marrow. And in rare circumstances, it can cause elevation in hepatic enzymes, although this usually is not that severe. If you think about valproic acid, I like to think of one of its most common side effects as falling into the category of generating a polycystic ovarian type syndrome. And so basically, you can have weight gain, hair loss, menstrual irregularities, uh, hirsutism, things like that. It can also cause tremor, and it's really important, and we'll get back to this, to talk about valproic acid as a teratogenic medication. For lamotrigine, again, it can cause all the side effects of the sodium channel blockers, but the big one to remember is that it can cause a serious and even deadly skin rash or a Stephen Johnson syndrome. I'll talk about topiramate and zonisamide together. These are cousins. They have similar mechanism of action, and they have a similar efficacy profile and a similar side effect profile. You all remember from headache clinic that topiramate can cause kidney stones, It causes appetite suppression or weight loss, whereas most of the other medications cause weight gain. It can cause uh, cognitive slowing. We sometimes term this dopamax. And of course, there is the rare uh, uh, result of acute ankle closure glaucoma. Both topiramide and zanisamide can also cause paresthesias. This is probably because they're carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. And one of the ways that you can treat the paresthesias with topiramide and zanisamide is by supplementing with uh, potassium. Oxcarbazepine is a cousin of carbamazepine. It has similar side effects. It's not as strong an enzyme inducer, but the hyponatremia, the low sodium, is probably even more common with oxcarbazepine. Licosamide you know about, and you really have to know about the fact that it prolongs the PR interval, but like all other sodium channel blockers, it can cause dizziness, ataxia, slurred speech, etc. I think it's important to remember that if you add lacosamide to another sodium channel blocker, you'll really double down on those side effects. Felbamate is something that comes up on exams. It's not something that most of you are using in practice, but the big two things you have to think about with felbamate is that paradoxically, it can cause both an aplastic anemia and an irreversible hepatic failure. Most of you are not going to be prescribing felbamate for these reasons because an experienced epilepsy doctor has to prescribe this and monitor these, uh, pro- these uh, parameters closely. Finally, we talk about levatoracetam and brivaracetam. Both have been associated with serious psychiatric side effects. On the milder end, you can have irritability or short temper. And on the more severe end, you can have depression, severe anxiety, or even suicidality. It's really important to be careful about prescribing levotiracetam in somebody who already has psychiatric side effects. Finally, let's talk about special populations. And the two populations I want to talk about are elderly people and women of childbearing potential. The first are elderly people. Elderly people will typically metabolize anti-seizure medications much more slowly uh, and much less effectively than younger people, and therefore you often have to start at much lower doses. Sometimes we will start at a half or a quarter of the dose that we would for an older uh, for a younger adult. I think it's important to remember for elderly people, if they have decreased renal clearance, that you may have to adjust medications that are mainly renally cleared. And there's a short list of medications that are primarily renal cleared. All the rest are hepatically metabolized. The renally cleared medications include levotiracetam and brivaracetam. They include pregabalin and gabapentin. And lacosamide is partially renally cleared. And therefore, these medications have to be renally dosed. All of the other medications, or at least uh, for your purposes, all the other medications are hepatically metabolized. Now let's talk about women of childbearing potential, and I think this is a really important uh, consideration. And really what I want to focus on is uh, the teratogenic potential of anti-seizure medications. I think these fall into a spectrum. Some we know very well, and then newer medications we don't know that much about. The safest medications in pregnancy and those associated with the lowest risk of major congenital malformations or other problems are lamotrigine and levetiracetam. Oxcarbazepine and carbamazepine are probably a little bit higher risk, but still in the lower range. In the mid-range include phenobarbital, phenytoin, and topiramate. And it's good to remember the specific problems associated with each of those. So phenytoin may be associated with slightly increased risk of neural tube defects and other developmental problems. Phenobarbital is commonly associated with cardiac uh, endocardial cushion and other cardiac developmental abnormalities. And topiramate famously is associated with an increased risk of cleft lip and palate as well as some midline renal abnormalities. So those are in the higher risk and probably should be avoided in pregnancy if at all possible. And then, of course, the very seriously teratogenic drug is valproic acid. Valproic acid is associated with increased risk of neural tube defects facts. It's associated with increased risk of other developmental problems. It's probably associated with increased risk of autism spectrum disorder. And in a study called the NEED study, which is NEAD, women with, uh, who took valproic acid uh, during pregnancy had children with substantially lower IQs than women with other anti medications. All women on anti-seizure medication should be on supplemental folic acid, and that can help prevent developmental difficulties and may enhance in, uh, brain development and intellectual functioning. And the dose of folic acid ranges anywhere between one and five milligrams a day, and uh, there's some debate about what to use. The important thing is that you should be prescribing folic acid to all women of childbearing potential. Finally, just to review again, the association between the oral contraceptive medication and anti-seizure medications, any of the enzyme-inducing medications can be associated with decreased effectiveness of the oral contraceptive pill. So again, the big ones you're going to want to think about are carbamazepine, phenobarbital, phenytoin, maybe high doses of topiramid and oxcarbazepine, but again, the big three enzyme-inducers you're going to want to think about are carbamazepine, phenobarbital, and phenytoin. Finally, and we talked about this before, oral contraceptive medications actually decrease the levels of lamotrigine. So lamotrigine does not necessarily decrease levels of oral contraceptive pills, but vice versa. So if you have a woman who's on a stable level of lamotrigine, you start the birth control pill, you're going to see a decrease in overall level of lamotrigine and therefore overall effectiveness of this medication and the the dose will typically have to be adjusted. All right, let's move on to talking about electroclinical syndromes, and this is something we review a lot, but I consider it really important to review over and over again, and these are things that come up again and again on the right examination and on the board examination, and there are there is a limited number of these syndromes, and you really just need to know the key features of each. So I'm going to go in order of commonness, maybe, uh, and I will talk with each one about the age at onset, the types of seizures that are associated with it, other associated clinical features, the typical EEG findings and treatment choices. And if you knew, knew these things, and if you can generate a table of these uh, electroclinical syndromes in your mind or on paper, you're going to do well. And you really don't have to know a lot. You just have to know the basics. Let's start with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy or JME. Juvenile myoclonic epilepsy is the most common of the generalized epilepsy syndromes. It typically has an age of onset in teenage to young adulthood, and the seizure types include bilateral tonic-clonic seizures, myoclonic seizures, and sometimes abson seizures. These people are intellectually normal, developmentally normal, in every other way. It's really important to remember the association with this and sleep deprivation and alcohol. I sometimes call this the uh, mid-year freshman disease. So a freshman goes away to school. They uh, cram for all of their uh, uh, midterm examinations, pull a lot of all-nighters, and then go out drinking with their friends, are sleep-deprived, and that's when they have their first seizure. So sleep deprivation alcohol are big triggers, and it's not when they drink alcohol, it's the next day that you see that. The uh, EEG findings for JME, you want to think about this on your own, but it includes four to five Hertz generalized spike wave discharges or polyspike wave discharges. And again, we sometimes call this quote unquote "fast spike wave because it's faster than your typical three Hertz generalized spike wave discharges. So again, generalized, four to five hertz spike wave or polyspike wave discharges. You can see a photoparoxysmal response on EEG, and this is really important to remember, and sometimes this will come up on the, uh, on the in-service examination. You'll look at an epoch of EEG and you look at the bottom of that epoch or that uh, visual example, and there is documentation of photic stimulation. That is the flashing light stimulation. And if you see flashing light stimulation followed by a sustained spike wave or polyspike wave discharge, sometimes with clinical myoclonus, that's the photomyogenic or photoparoxysmal response, and that is commonly seen in juvenile myoclonic epilepsy. The treatments for JME include generalized or broad-spectrum agents, and again, to remember, you want to use medications that do not worsen myoclonus. So for young men, when you're not concerned about side effects or teratogenicity, you want to think about valproic acid. That tends to be the most effective medication for juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, although, of course, it is teratogenic and should be avoided in women of childbearing potential. For women of childbearing potential, levetiracetam is a good choice. Of course, if they have psychiatric side, uh, side effects or psychiatric comorbidities, you may think about lamotrigine, although this may not be quite as effective. Next, we're going to move on to absence epilepsy. And there are two main types of absence epilepsy syndromes, and you really have to think about both. There's childhood absence epilepsy, which has an earlier age of onset, and there's juvenile absence epilepsy, which has a later age of onset. So childhood absence epilepsy typically has an age of onset between 3 and 12 years of age, whereas juvenile absence epilepsy usually starts a bit later, usually sort of 10 or older, sometimes in adolescence. The seizure types for childhood absence epilepsy is really primarily only absence seizures. It's uncommon for them to have bilateral tonic-clonic seizures, and if they do, those are typically rare and one-off phenomena. Juvenile absence epilepsy is a little different. It's a little bit more like JME, where uh, their uh, bilateral tonic-clonic seizures are more common. Both of these children, both the childhood and juvenile absence epilepsy, they both are Intellectually and developmentally normal, and they don't tend to have any neurological problems. In both cases, the classic finding, and this is something you will see on all sorts of examinations, is a very regular. 3 Hertz generalized spike wave discharge. So, again, 3 Hertz generalized spike wave discharges is the classic finding in both childhood and juvenile absence epilepsy. And it is the EEG correlate of the seizure itself. So, an absence seizure, if that occurs, what you would see on EEG is regular 3 Hertz. Sometimes it starts at 3.5 hertz and slows down, but really 3 hertz generalized spike wave discharges, and you really need to know what that looks like. If, uh, if you haven't looked at that, pull up any sort of materials, uh, do a web search and look at images, and you'll see that very regular 3 hertz spike wave. It almost looks like wallpaper because if you lined each second up next to each other, they're identical. The treatment for childhood absence epilepsy, you also really need to know, in a randomized trial, ethosuxamide was the most effective and best tolerated. There are alternative medications, which can include lamotrigine, levetiracetam, and valproate, but really your initial medication for absence epilepsy is ethosux. For juvenile absence epilepsy, if there are bilateral tonic-clonic seizures, then you want to consider other medications including lamotrigine, levetiracetam, valproate, those types of medications that are broad spectrum. The next, uh, uh, the next electroclinical syndrome that we're going to talk about is benign epilepsy with central temporal spikes, also sometimes known as benign Rolandic epilepsy. And this epilepsy typically has onset in childhood somewhere between three to 12 years, probably most commonly sort of in a five or six-year-old. And these are classic nocturnal seizures, so typically at night out of sleep. And they are focal seizures, typically involving the face, the palate, the mouth. And so if you see a question stem where you're talking about a young child with nocturnal events, that involve the face or mouth that have focal manifestations, you're thinking about benign uh, epilepsy with central temporal spikes or benign Rolandic epilepsy. And again, you can have bilateral tonic-clonic seizures with this syndrome, but those are rare. These kids are also developmentally normal, although maybe they can have some mild attentional or developmental problems, but typically they're normal. And the EEG finding is really in the name. What you're going to see are spikes in the central, which is going to be C3, C4, or the temporal, and it's really mid-temporal. So that's going to be T7, T8 uh, regions. And you'll often see them on both sides independently. So these will be focal spikes with a large field in the central and temporal regions that are more frequent during sleep. In terms of treatment, many people will decide not to treat this at all because the seizures are rare and they rarely generalize, and it tends to be a self-limited disorder. If you do treat, you're going to tend to use a focal agent like oxcarbazepine or carbamazepine, although other focal agents may work as well. Next, we're going to talk about childhood occipital epilepsy. And childhood occipital epilepsy has two variants, an early variant and a late variant. And this is kind of like childhood absence and juvenile absence epilepsy. So the early variant is also known as Panayatopoulos syndrome. And so you will see that term come up on questions, Panayatopoulos. And really what that is, is childhood epilepsy, uh, childhood occipital epilepsy. The late version is sometimes called the Gastaut variant of childhood uh, um, occipital epilepsy. In both cases, you will have um, seizures that arise from the occipital region. In the early case, it's often with Eye movement abnormalities, vomiting. Again, these are usually at night. And in older children, you can see visual phenomena. These kids, again, tend to be developmentally normal. And on EEG, what you see are focal spikes in the occipital regions. Again, more during sleep than wakefulness. Treatments, again, some people don't treat at all. And if they do, they tend to use carbamazepine and oxcarbazepine. Again, you really don't need to know a lot about it. I think that the term panneatopolis is somewhat intimidating because it's such a big word. But really, you just need to remember that that's occipital epilepsy. So panneatopolis syndrome is childhood occipital epilepsy. It's, it tends to be a benign syndrome, self-limited, and nocturnal events, visual or eye movement abnormalities. Next, we're going to talk about some more severe uh, generalized epilepsy syndromes. And the first I'm going to talk about is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, you really just need to think about a triad. And that triad is multiple seizure types, usually including atonic seizures, but tonic, uh, clonic, uh, bilateral tonic-clonic, but you do see those drop attacks or atonic seizures. You see children with developmental delay or cognitive difficulties. And on EEG, you see a characteristic finding, which is slow spike in wave. So you remember with JME, we saw fast spike in wave, which was four to five hertz. Slow spike in wave is one to two hertz. Again, the typical normal spike in wave that we saw with absence is three hertz. So again, to remember with generalized spike in wave, you can have slow, normal, and fast. Slow is Lennox-Gastaut, normal is childhood absence, and fast is JME. So you see slow spike in wave uh, activity, which you will sometimes see, uh, on the examination. So again, to review the triad with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome is multiple seizure types, including drop attacks, slow spike and wave uh, discharges on EEG, and cognitive dysfunction. Those are really the three things you need to remember. And this is a very serious and severe epilepsy syndrome and usually requires treatment with multiple medications. Finally, we'll talk about West syndrome. So West syndrome is, in some cases, a precursor to Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And again, it has a triad associated with it as well. West syndrome has a seizure type which is epileptic, also known as infantile spasms. So epileptic or infantile spasms, which, as we talked about before, are the spasms with sudden stiffening of the body, extension of the arms, and flexion or extension of the head, and this can occur in multiple clusters of dozens of these spells in a single day or even in a a period of several hours. There is developmental delay, and on EEG, you see hypsarrhythmia. And arrhythmia, again, look very carefully at the EEGs examples uh, when you're uh, looking at them on the in-service examination. And if you see the sensitivity turned way down, you know that this is very high-voltage activity. And arrhythmia is high-voltage, disorganized background with multifocal spikes. It, is, it looks exactly the same upside down as right side up. Finally, I think the thing to remember about West syndrome is that during the spasm on EEG, you see something called an electrodecrement. And what that is is that there's a sudden attenuation of the background, uh, an electrodecremental response during the spasm itself. So again, to remember the things you need to know, you really need to know four things about West syndrome, the triad of infantile spasms, developmental delay in hypsarrhythmia, and the fact that the seizures are associated with electrodecrement. Finally, you do need to know about treatment of infantile spasms, and there are two main treatments. We use either ACTH or Vigabitrin. ACTH is usually the standard, but Vigabitrin is often used when West syndrome is associated with tuberous sclerosis. So you will sometimes see this on your uh, examinations, either the boards or the in-surface examination, uh, where there will be a question about somebody with spasms and uh, tuberous sclerosis and the standard of care in that case is vigabatrin. Finally, we're going to talk about three more very rare syndromes in childhood. And again, I know this seems really intimidating, but let's just break it down to these three and then we'll be finished this podcast. And those three are Odahara syndrome, Rasmussen syndrome and Dravet syndrome. So again, you really only need to remember a few different things about each of these syndromes, and I would encourage you to look again at the table and uh, be aware of these. For Otahara syndrome, you need to know that it occurs in early infancy, that it's very severe and often uh, progressive, uh, and it's associated with burst suppression on EEG. So Otahara syndrome is a early infancy severe progressive epilepsy syndrome it's often very very severe Uh, and the eeg finding that you're going to see on that is burst suppression rasmussen syndrome you need to know about uh, and that is thought to be of autoimmune pathology it can happen in childhood at any age uh, and it is basically a progressive hemispheric epilepsy so one hemisphere is effective Affected, and you see continuous focal seizures, often focal motor seizures or epi- epilepsia partialis continua, and then hemiparesis and developmental regression. The treatment for this can include anti seizure medications, immune suppression, or in some cases, hemispherectomy. So that is Rasmussen syndrome. Rasmussen syndrome is your lateralized, progressively worsening syndrome. And finally, there's Dravet syndrome. And Dravet syndrome is also known as progressive myoclonic epilepsy of infancy again it occurs in infancy you see myoclonic seizures it's classically associated at the time of first seizure a uh, uh, first immunization or with febrile seizures and it's important to remember uh, one thing with Dravet syndrome is that we know the mutation that causes this it's a sodium channel mutation called SCN1A and so sometimes if you treat this with sodium channel blockers like phenytoin, carbamazepine, et cetera, you can make the seizures worse. So again, the three to remember are Odahara, birth suppression, Rasmussen's, which is a hemispheric onset, and Gervais, which is a severe myoclonic epilepsy with at one a mutation. Uh, I know that you can read about this in a lot more depth, but at least you will have been aware of it if you listen to this podcast. We're happy about everything we do and everything we love, and we love playing Lego with each other because it makes us feel happy, and that's what I feel like. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.